we're coming to this fourth message, which is definitely my favorite. Uh, if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 21, and while you're turning, turning there, I also just wanted to say a couple things about your pastor while he's not here. <laughs> I want to encourage you to value and treasure Andy and Priscilla for the gift that they are. Um, I've been to a lot of churches and have seen a lot of pastors, and maybe you have as well. And one of the things that is unmistakable about Andy is his humility and his kindness. And I don't think you ever have to worry about him not taking his task seriously that the Lord has given him. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writing to Timothy, a young pastor, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And obviously we know that verse. We, we recite it a lot as it pertains to the nature of Scripture and what Scripture is useful for. But remember, this is a verse that Paul gives to Timothy. This is a verse for a pastor, right? All Scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for these things, so that the man of God may be adequate, Equipped for every good work. And Andy is well equipped with scripture. So I want to, what, I, what I want to sort of risk asking you to do and exhorting you to do is to let him do these things in your life. Let Andy wield the scripture as a pastor for all these things, for teaching you, for reproving you, <laughs> which is not always easy, for correction and for training in righteousness. All right. Let him do those things. Um, God has brought him there to do those things. And those are the right things for him to do as a pastor. Second passage, just uh, while we're on topic here, is in the latter part of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. One of the closing thoughts in this wonderful epistle. He says to the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And some pastors, they tend to start thinking about their, their ministry in, in secular terms. You know, my time off, my retirement's coming, got to make sure I crank out this sermon, etc. But I, I assure you that Andy takes this seriously in regards to keeping watch for your souls, because one day he will stand before Christ to give an account. I think the key in this verse is obey them and submit to them. Do that. But notice what it says uh, about their watching, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So there is this interplay, right, between pastors and the church, their role, the church's role. And he's never going to be a, a tyrant, right? He's never going to be a dictator. Always know he knows the burden to lead as a servant leader. But the church has a role to play as well, and that's to let him lead. And if you do that well and take this seriously, he'll be able to carry out his ministry with joy. And that's going to be good and profitable for you, the writer says here. So there is this sort of relational dynamic. He has obligations, certainly before the Lord as a pastor. You have obligations as well before the Lord as, as the church. And there are nuances to that, right? We are all brothers in the Lord, all brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but if you do this well, uh, he will be able to do his job well. And with joy. One of the hardest things for a pastor is not the long hours or the demands. It's when, it's when you get um, undue criticism from the flock. Or you get criticism not to you directly, but to other people in the church, right? If you have a grudge and you share someone else, it can just take the sail, uh, wind right out of your sails. So that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Appreciate your pastor and, and uh, do the best for him. Treasure him. Because you have a treasure there. So, amen. Amen. I'm not assuming anything negative. I'm just, yeah. Okay, moving on. <laughs> moving on. And he didn't tell me to say that either. He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything that prompted those thoughts, just in general. Just in general. Okay. Yeah. It's his own fault, right? Okay. <laughs> All right, John 21. Starting in verse 1. Let's just go ahead and read the whole passage down to verse 19. I'll pray and then we'll get started. 
After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you also. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed upon it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grew old, I'm sorry, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Father in heaven, thank you for this portion of your word. And I do pray that it would instruct us this morning and would complete um, this series of messages demonstrating your work in the life of Peter to deepen his discipleship. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us and minister to our hearts in a specific and peculiar way, that your word would come alive to us, that you would show us wonderful things from your law, that your spirit would illumine our understanding of it, Lord, we pray that you would be exalted as your grace is on display here. Minister to our hearts individually, Lord, and draw us closer to you during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to have to rearrange here for a minute. I'm used to a slightly bigger pulpit at home. Okay. Well, we had just seen Peter's low point in his denial of Christ. Jesus had foretold that all 11 would abandon him that night from back in Mark 14, 27. You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And so they are headed up to Galilee. And here in this account, there's only seven apostles. And so very likely in this interval of time, they had spread out somewhat, and some here are up in Galilee. Peter, of course, vehemently denied that he would deny Christ, saying to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And we know that regardless of what Peter had thought of himself, he did in fact deny the Lord and did so three times. 
The third was as adamant as possible, cursing and swearing, may God strike me dead, I swear to you, I do not know him. I do not know who you're talking about and the rooster crows. Luke 22 says, the Lord looked at Peter and he went out and wept bitterly. This was devastating for Peter. We talked a little bit about pride, but this denial of Peter's highlights several applications. It highlights the cost of discipleship. We just saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And Jesus warned back in Mark 8, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he will be ashamed of in his coming. There's, there's a demand here and a cost of discipleship that we are not ashamed of the gospel in a world that is hostile to it. Jesus calls each one of us, including Peter, to follow him with this in mind. Another application is that Peter now highlights the pitfalls of pride, right? He had been so self-confident of his own spiritual ability, and it left him vulnerable because he's re- relying on himself and he's open to a lack of prayer and vulnerable to Satan's attack. Jesus said, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And this is part of the dynamic spiritually in his denial. The third application here is that Peter's denial demonstrates that he is a disciple, a prominent apostle, is in utter need of grace, right? And that sets the stage for all of us as well. These accounts are in the Gospels foremost to demonstrate his need. And here Jesus will lovingly restore him, even after such a terrible failure. Peter's denial ultimately becomes a lesson of grace. We want to look at that restoration process here in this passage. This is the seventh appearance of Christ after his resurrection. During these 40 days, so Jesus is raised from the grave, and then there is around 40 days Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that he appears to his disciples. The first was to Mary Magdalene on that first Sunday. The apostle, she had gone to the tomb early, seen the empty tomb. The other lady, and then gone back to tell the apostles, the other ladies had come and seen the angels and they had told them that he is risen. After Mary comes to the ten disciples without Thomas, without Judas, who are there, She tells them the tomb is empty. They've taken and stolen him. Peter runs and John runs and Peter sees the empty tomb. Mary goes again a second time and that's when the first person sees the risen Christ and it's Mary. He then appears to two other women. He then appears to Cleopas and a friend on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He does make an appearance to Peter. That's mentioned in passing in Luke 24, 34. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5. All we have is an allu- two allusions to that appearance. We don't know what transpired between the Lord and Peter during that time. Maybe Peter didn't say anything. Maybe Peter couldn't even look at the Lord during that time. We have, we have no idea. It'd be, it'd be fun to ask Peter in heaven someday. Peter, what did you talk to the Lord about when, when he first told you in Mark 8 about the cross? Right? We don't have the dialogue except for the end. Peter, what did the Lord talk to you about in that first meeting? He appears the following Sunday to the apostles again with Thomas there. And then also uh, he appears here. He probably appeared more on various occasions during these 40 days, but these are what are recorded in scripture. And this is the seventh appearance here. He demonstrates himself alive And he demonstrates that he is bodily resurrected. This is the first token of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. It is a different body in some senses because it's been changed. It is the same body because it is the body that had been buried that is no longer in the tomb. This is sort of the way the resurrection will work for us as well. He is not a ghost. He is not an apparition. He eats before them to demonstrate this. And Christ appeared over this course of time. There's a lot of details in this passage that we're going to fly by. But I want us to look at especially how Jesus lovingly and firmly restores Peter 
And there are three aspects to this restoration. The first is that Jesus restores Peter to a loving relationship, to a loving relationship. There are really two halves to this passage, and this relational aspect is in the first. It's verses 1 through 14. Jesus doesn't say much during this time, but he orchestrates this event very much tailored to Peter and the other disciples, but specifically to Peter. And his actions especially demonstrate this kind of restoring love. As we mentioned at the beginning, seven disciples are there. You can see in verses two and three, uh, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, who would have been James and John, and then two other of his disciples, which very likely were Philip and Andrew. They kind of all went together uh, in that initial calling in the beginning of his ministry. Now they decide to go fishing. Notice verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. Now there is, there's a lot of debate in this passage, different ideas of what's going on here. Some say that there's not much to this. They had time to pass. They weren't sure when Jesus would show up again. And so while they're in Galilee, what are Galilean fishermen going to do? They're going to fish. But I think there may be more here with Peter. Peter is still, I think, in limbo. He had that glance from Christ in Luke, right? This is sort of the last formal interaction between the two until Jesus is crucified, right? Jesus appears to him at at least three times we know. We don't know what those interactions were like. You can imagine it like this. Let's say you had a close relative and at the last Thanksgiving, you got into a heated argument over politics. Then you see them again around Easter time. Then maybe again in the summer. But in those two occasions, you really haven't gone back to that earlier conflict and resolved it. You see them, you say hi to them, you ask how things are going, you ask about work, but there's been no reconciliation yet. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Say amen if you do, right? Or maybe it's someone in your, in your dorm, maybe it's someone in your class, maybe it's someone at work. You're sort of hovering around one another but you haven't addressed the elephant in the room. I think that's where Peter is at. And in between his interactions with Christ, Peter has his memories, right? Peter has stark, vivid memories of what had transpired leading up to Jesus's death. And I don't think they fully have put together the significance of his death and the significance of his resurrection even by this time. I think all of that will become solidified by the time they receive the Holy Spirit and all the benefits that come with receiving the Holy Spirit, and then they move in power in ministry. It's very clear that Peter put all of these things together, obviously, in that latter part of his life. We we see them put together in 1 Peter, uh, the, the epistle that we have of the older apostle. So when Peter says, I'm going fishing, I think this could be loaded with disappointment in himself, with regret, with depression, with sorrow, and with the feeling that I don't think God's going to use me anymore. I'm going fishing because I got to eat while I'm still here. I'm going fishing because when I was fishing, I was successful at it and I could do it. I I can't leave the church after this. I'm so thankful that Christ is raised. I'm hopeful for what he's going to do, but I don't think it involves me. I don't know. In light of how Jesus restores him here, three commands, tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. I wonder if Peter's confidence in his calling is totally shaken at this point. God is not going to use me. So I'm going fishing. You know, I've been in times like this in the course of my life after having sensed God's call where I just say, I'm going plumbing. That, what I just experienced was too much. Giving 
everything I have to this, seeing my own weaknesses, my own shortcomings, not seeing a lot of fruit. I'm going plumbing, right? I know I can do this. I know I can do this. They say, we'll go with you as well. So they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Right? So if you're the reader, that should be the first indication something's going on here. Right? This sounds an awful lot like Luke chapter 5. They caught nothing. But, verse 4, when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? That's a strange thing to say, children. It could be a passing lads. Some part of their language that was appropriate. Lads, do you have any fish? Or it could be a reference to their childlike faith or their sort of uh, childlike level in spiritual maturity. Now he's the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Lord, and he could speak to them this way. Either way, they answer him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. This is a distinct detail from the episode in Luke 5, but it's related and similar, right? Jesus says, cast your nets into the deep and you'll, you'll find a catch, right? And they had worked hard all night. There is an arbitrary nature to the additional cast, right? If we've cast the nets all night, we have probably cast them, I don't know, a hundred times, 127 times. And the odds are, what is the 128th time going to matter? And I think the similarity is here, but heightened that this is also kind of arbitrary, right? What is the difference between the right-hand side of the boat and the left when it comes to a school of fish? Nothing, right? It seems fairly ridiculous. Cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. I think this is intentional from the Lord. I don't think they get it just yet. They will in a moment. I think this is very intentional from Christ. So they cast. Now, someone was asking me this morning, why did they just obey this guy? They didn't know who he was on the beach. It's, it's early in the morning, presumably pretty dark. Why do they, why do, they do this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they were tired and they were like, okay, here's another expert telling us how to fish. And so they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. All right, now we put these things together. The night of fishing, catching nothing. The arbitrary command, cast your net on the right-hand side. And now this overwhelming catch of fish. What do you think this means to Peter? This is exactly like the event in Luke 5, right? That meant so much to Peter, right? That meant so much to Peter with how he said, okay, Lord, we've fished all night, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And then an overwhelming so that he's on his face, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I think this is all geared towards that. And then John says, therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, I don't know why John got it more than Peter. Maybe that's just John's sort of passing comment on uh, his relationship dynamic with Peter as two apostles. I don't know. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And I think there, all these things now flash in his mind, right? The, com- the command, the great catch of fish, the night of catching nothing. I think Peter now remembers this is exactly what happened way at the beginning in Luke 5. At that time, Peter had already been summoned to follow Christ, but that event in Luke 5, I think, solidified Peter's initial commitment to the Lord. The, I'm, I'm interacting here with someone that, I, that I, I didn't know who he was, right? I'll cast down the nets. Great quantity of fish. Who is this who commands these fish, right? The greatest catch of my life. And now it's being repeated. And so... You remember Peter's response. He girds himself and he tosses himself into the water to get to Jesus. This event is tailor-made for him. He girds himself and he casts himself into the water. 
it's curious why he girded himself, right? Verse 7, so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I don't know about you, but most people don't put a garment on and then go in the water, right? So there's various ideas of why this happened. It could be that he wanted to present himself to the Lord in that way. It could be that this outer garment was sort of draping loosely around him. And so the girding part is that he he tied it up in bundles so when he swam, it wasn't sort of falling all over the place. This is my view. I didn't find this in any commentaries. It's not my view. It's a thought. I wonder if Peter at this point was so excited about the Lord and this event had sort of triggered so many memories of being with the Lord out on the Sea of Galilee that maybe Peter puts this on because he's not planning on getting wet. That he's thinking, I'm walking right to him. I don't know. John doesn't say. That's another thing to ask Peter. But he, he, he puts this garment on and he throws himself into the sea and we find him there on land with the Lord. Presumably he swam there. As it goes on, it says, the other disciples came in a little boat for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire, fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Where did the bread come from? We're not told. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have uh, now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish. And when I picture this, this is a large catch of fish. This seems to convey Peter's exuberance, right? And his strength. He worked hard all night. And now that the Lord's here, he, he goes in the sea, swims ashore. They come in. And as soon as Jesus says, bring some fish, he's got it, right? He's there on the shore. He's rolling it in. It's heavy. He's dragging it. They're probably exhausted just watching him do all this. But I think it speaks to Peter's, Peter's heart, right? That sort of tiredness and depression. I'm going fishing. Fishing all night, working hard. It's now turned around because Christ is there. And these things are happening. And Jesus knows, I'm sorry, Peter knows Jesus is, is doing something here. There's a connection. We're, we're, we're sort of back on track. The immediate memories of having denied him and then his gruesome crucifixion, his burial in the tomb, these meetings where things were not resolved, those are his immediate memories. But now he's remembering three years earlier. Some of the things that Jesus did and the good times and the miracles and the learning that Peter had gone through and the growth and the times of joy and interaction with the Lord and, and deep learning. I think he's starting to remember these things and his heart is being warmed and encouraged. So he drags these up. There's 153 fish. I think they just counted. This is a mark of an eyewitness, right? You'd be amazed at the allegorical interpretations over the years about these 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Again, a passing reference to Luke 5 when their nets were about to break at the large quantity of fish. And John is just tipping us off that this is an equivalent event for Peter. The nets were not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. What a welcoming gesture. All of them had denied Christ, especially Peter. And he says, come have breakfast. He's serving them. He's serving them. In that final night with them, he had put on a towel and washed their feet to demonstrate that he was the Savior who had come not to be served, but to serve, and that they were to do the same. And now he is serving them and inviting them to breakfast, to a meal, inviting them back to fellowship. None of them ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And now this is also reminiscent of their time with him, right? When he had multiplied the loaves and the fish, he took bread, gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In John 6, 11, 
when feeding the 5,000, it says, Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. And the crowds, when they saw that, said, truly, this is the prophet, the prophet that Moses had referred to, who is to come into the world. Those are the types of things, I think, that would have been going through their minds as they did this with Jesus. And not much is said. And I think the Lord is setting the tone here to welcome them back into fellowship. He has been strong enough and powerful enough to lay down his life on the cross. And he has been strong enough and powerful enough to to rise from the dead. No one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it again, right? And I think part of this gesture is to tell them, regardless of how much you've failed, it's okay. I've got it. And I'm welcoming you back into fellowship with me now as the resurrected Christ, similar to when I was here with you before. We've gone through those things. So when they had finished breakfast, in verse 15, the scene changes. Jesus sets the tone with these events that trigger the memories of his apostles, especially Peter, and there is zero animosity from the Lord here. You know, as a child, there was nothing worse for me than doing something bad that would alienate me from my mom. So my mom and dad had different sort of characteristics. My mom was super servant-hearted, super faithful, and she loved us to the nth degree. There was no question or doubt about that in her mind because of all that she did for us, and it was hard. She worked a swing shift for most of my childhood. She would take care of us in the house during the day, and I was pretty bad kid and full of energy and did all kinds of nasty things, and when she was really, really upset with me, she would say, go to your room. I don't even want to look at you. That was worse than getting a spanking because of how much I knew she loved me and how much I loved her. She would say, go to your room. I don't even want to look at you. And I can imagine that in the, in the, in the apostle's mind, especially Peter, it would be a similar dynamic, right? Knowing how much he loved the Lord and how much really the Lord loved him that after this denial, there would be this this terrible disappointment that Peter would experience. But in this scene, in these scenes here, Jesus is conveying that's not the case. That's not the case. It's not go away from me. I don't even want to look at you, Peter. And he, he kind of deserved that, right? In a secular setting, right? That's what we would experience from someone else. Jesus is conveying to them that's not the case. There's no grudge. There is no animosity These events communicate from Christ love and grace for his apostles and in particular to Peter. He blesses them with his great catch. He comes and says, let's enjoy a meal together. There's ample grace to cover your failure. There's ample grace to go on walking with the Lord. This relationship has not been permanently severed, although by all rights it could have been and should have been. There is ample grace to cover. And when we fail, and sin against the Lord, it is the same. And I would encourage you that the right thing to do in those moments of sin, in those moments of failure, in those moments of weakness, the right thing to do is to remember the cross and remember what Christ has done already in your life. And the best thing to do is to go back to him, confess your sin, and start walking again in the light. We're to walk in the light as Christians. And that does not mean sinless perfection. If it did, John would not say right after that, confess your sins. Part of walking in the light is to, yes, pursue holiness and live honestly before the Lord. Not with any secret sins kept in the closet. But when we do sin, to not shrink back into the darkness and hide and cover our sins like Adam and Eve. But to confess them openly to the Lord and then receive the grace For forgiveness that is there, remembering that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He has atoned and also is the advocate. That atoning work, 
He represents before the Father presently for our sins. There is ample grace to cover our sins. He wants Peter to feel that in these events. But now the scene turns to more directly his dialogue with Peter. And here in verses 15 through 17, we see that Jesus restores Peter to ministry. He restores Peter to a relationship in these events. And now he restores Peter to ministry. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These verses are, again, laden with different views on what is happening here. Some say that Jesus, when he says, do you love me more than these? He is referring to the fish or the fishing equipment. And certainly grammatically, it could be that. Or some say that Jesus's question revolves around, do you love me more than these other disciples? Do you love them and their sort of relationships to you as friends more than you love me? Or do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And of course, in light of these several messages in the broader context of Peter's denial, I think it's the third. I think this connects directly with what Peter had said when Jesus said, you will deny me tonight. Mark 14, 29, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. So what Jesus means is, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Do you still think that about yourself? Is your love for me greater than the love of these other disciples? And this is a cutting question because obviously, what is Peter going to boast in now? Right? Jesus goes directly to the heart with this question. Peter no longer has a boast over against the other apostles. The proof has been in his actions. He had denied the Lord and forsook him just like the rest. What is he going to say? Another question about these verses is the nature of the words love. There are two words used here for love, agapao and phileo. A lot of ink has been spilled on trying to understand their differences. Now, one thing I'll say on one side of the debate is these are not opposites, right? A lot of times we can think when we pair two things together that automatically we, they're, they're opposites. We drift into a structure of opposites, but that's not how words work often in language. These are distinct words and they have distinct meanings, but they overlap in their meanings. They're not opposites, nor is one good and the other bad. A lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll hear uh, that agapao is God's kind of love and phileo is just sort of human friendship kind of love, like Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. But agapao is God's love and therefore, phileo is sort of earthly, human love. Agapao is divine. Therefore, one is good, one is bad. That's not the, the relationship of these words. In fact, agapao can be used for God's love. Phileo can be used for God's love as well. Agapao is sometimes used for love of things in the world. Like in 3 John, Demas having departed because he loved the things in the world is agapao. Phileo can be used of God's love for the Son even in John's gospel, right? So we don't want to oversimplify those meanings. We don't want to misconstrue how they relate to one another as opposites. But on the other hand, some commentators say this is simply a stylistic variation that John is giving here. Like he's interchanging all kinds of words in this small paragraph. For example, lambs is a different word than sheep in verse 16. And also, when he says tend, that's a different word than shepherd in verse 16. So he's doing just sort of stylistic variation as a writer. He's probably doing that with those two verbs for love. That's the other side of the spectrum. And the net result is there is no difference in the words here. Well, I land somewhere in the middle. I think there is a distinction here. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he uses the word agapao. Now, by the time when this happens is much earlier than the time that John writes. And by the time that John writes, this word agapao has been consistently used by the apostles and New Testament writers for God's love. 
John uses it that way in his gospel. Paul uses it that way in Ephesians. We can think of all those wonderful verses that talk about God's love. I think John is using it here that way. Do you love me more than these? And at this point, it's a noble love. It involves much more than emotion. It involves a giving of oneself. It involves the the idea of covenantal committed love. Devoted would be a good word. Do you love me and are devoted to me more than these? It's interesting that Peter doesn't say no. He doesn't say, no, you know I don't really love you. I denied you. He says, yes, Lord. You know, but then he changes the word, I love you. And he uses phileo. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that word. But I think Peter is doing two things at the same time. He's saying, yes, Lord. Right? I affirm, I love you. And then he's saying, I love you in this other sense. Not necessarily a bad sense, but in a sense that can't be spoken of in as noble and divine terms as agapao, do you love me? But I want you to notice in the center of that response is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. This is different than their earlier exchange. Peter, before the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me three times. Truly, I say to you, you will. Lord, (laughs) Lord. Even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. What are you talking about? Peter knows, Jesus knows what he's talking about here. Yes, Lord, you know that I I love you in this way. He can't just say yes. It's a qualified yes. I want to love you, Lord. I should love you, Lord. But you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, tend my lambs. Tend my lambs. It's a command, right? It's a command to fulfill his calling. Tend my lambs. What what a command of trust. You, Peter, you're right. I know exactly who you are and I know what you did and I know where your heart is and I know where your degree of love is and I completely know your failure And really, your sin against me, I looked at you when it happened. I know you, Peter, I'm commanding you, you tend my lambs. What a trust. Who are Jesus' lambs? Boy, it's the entire church, right? All of the disciples at that point. The church in the future, tend my lambs. There is this, this wonderful interplay of Loving restoration for Peter here. And also a serious charge, right? This wonderful interplay of a loving shepherd that's going to comfort and embrace Peter in his weakness and then say, get up and go do what I told you to do. What a savior, what a shepherd we have. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John. And notice he's not using the name Peter here, right? And I think this, in some ways, speaks to Peter's thoughts. I'm going fishing, right? He called me rock. I blew it. I'm going fishing. Simon, son of John, if we're back here at the start, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same word, agapao. He said to him again, the same response, yes, Lord, you know that I love you with that term phileo, different term. Peter can't bring himself to say, yes, Lord, I love you. I think his gaze is maybe still down. I think there's a long pause and maybe a sigh with Peter not wanting to respond, not knowing exactly how to respond. You can hear the crickets chirping in the background after Jesus asks the second time. None of the other apostles, I think, are saying anything. I think they're kind of looking down, not looking at Peter, because really Peter's shame is exposed here in all of this. Do you love me more than these? They heard what Peter had said. Even if all these guys fail, I'm not going to fail. Right? Second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me? And here Jesus uses Peter's word. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says there this third time, uniquely and distinctly, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter is grieved. What's going on in his mind? This is the third time Jesus is asking. Perhaps in this question, using the the second term, gives an air of finality. Peter says, I love you in this way. Yes, Lord, I, I love you in this way. I cannot, in light of my actions, say I love you in your way. Perhaps there's a notion of finality. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this, is this going to be the extent of your love for me for the rest of your life? Are you going to stay in that sort of limited failure? Peter is grieved at this. And he says to him a third time, I'm sorry, he says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I just love you. And he says to him, tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Three denials. Three statements of restoration. This is what I want you to do. And I think Peter is struggling here and he is grieved here. I think he's going to stay grieved for a while. Until Acts chapter 2. These are the words that Jesus leaves with with him on this occasion. I want you... In your, as a failure, I still want you to tend my lambs, to shepherd my sheep, to tend my sheep. This calling I've placed on your life is not over, even in light of this failure. Tend my sheep. And I don't think Peter is ready to respond with confidence yet, but he will. <laughs> he will. Acts 2 comes, the Spirit descends, Peter preaches. And thousands of people respond. This is the church in Jerusalem. And I think Peter got done with that sermon and thought, I just caught men. I just had a quantity of men caught like I could have never imagined. Just like those fish at his word and just like those fish at his word. Right? And I think his, his heart is just soaring, right, with, with restoration and confidence in Christ that Jesus He's doing it, right? He's doing what he said would happen in spite of me. He's doing it. And it's all his power and it's not me. It wasn't even that great of a sermon, right? It's not like he was this great preacher. That thousands of people, thousands of Jews would respond. But it happens and Jesus does it. And Peter is there as the rock on whom I will build my church. And now he is off to the races in his ministry, tending Christ's sheep. Shepherding his flock. Jesus plans to restore him and Peter is struggling to be restored. But what a loving savior, right? What a loving savior. I still want to fulfill my plan for you. I still want to fulfill your calling. There's an added explanation in verse 18, which I think rounds out this whole scene. And connects with our theme that Jesus in these specific events has been specifically discipling Peter in the ups and the downs. Specifically calling him to learn about denying his self-allegiance and replacing it with ultimate allegiance to Christ in Mark 8. He is still working through that great depth of humility where he exposed his heart for what it is to prepare him for his long-term life of ministry. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. This is an amazing gaze on Peter's life because it potentially encompasses his life before even, even meeting Christ, right? We don't know how old Peter is when he first meets Christ, most likely in his middle age somewhere in his 30s or 40s even. But this risen Christ now tells him, I know about you when you were younger. It could have been in those years, but it's broader than that. When you were younger, you used to be very self-willed, is what this says. You used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished. Very self-willed. 
But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. And this is a reference to crucifixion. When you're older, that self-will will be gone. Not only will you not be able to gird yourself and go wherever you want, but I have decreed and God has decreed that your life will be taken from, your very life will be taken from you. You'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. At that point in your life, you will be fully surrendered to the will of God and you will die. Notice what John says. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And church history tells us for sure that Peter was martyred along the same time with Paul under the reign of Nero. It's not well-established history, but more church um, tradition says that he was crucified upside down, not willing to be crucified in the exalted manner as Christ his Lord. Jesus knows what he's going to do in Peter's life from when he's younger till the very end when he dies. And the last thing he says to him again is, follow me, follow me. This is what it entails. The same command I gave you when you were a fisherman to drop your nets and follow all through the three years of ministry, through your failure, now at your restoration, it's all still part of following me, follow me. Peter has this sort of glimpse of going back to comparing himself with others. Verse 20, Peter turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, the one who had leaned on on back of his bosom at the supper. This is John said, Lord, uh, sorry, uh, when, when, when he had said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so this final point of restoration is reminding Peter that he is still a disciple. He restores Peter here to discipleship. He will be that shepherd of the church, but still everything that he has gone through with Jesus in the early stages of his discipleship is relevant and now will continue. He says, you follow me. It involves denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. It involves shepherding my sheep, It involves being the rock that I called you to be that I will build my church upon. Peter grew in the Lord after this and he continued to grow as an apostle and a minister and an elder. I don't know how we're doing on time. 10.47 Time am I supposed to stop? 10, 10.30. Let me just show you several highlights in First Peter. I mentioned the other day that by the time you get to First Peter, you know, in my mind, having studied the Bible and gone to seminary, when I talk about Peter in the Gospels, it's a different picture in my mind. I just realized this recently. When I get to First Peter, I'm thinking of another guy almost, right? But it is the same guy. But the way he writes is just so different from the words and character of Peter in the Gospels It's like, wow, what a seasoned, wonderful disciple, pastor, apostle. Speaking now to many younger Christians, this epistle is a general epistle. It's written to uh, various churches, not to just one. And it's all about the basics and the fundamentals of discipleship and following Christ. Look what he says in 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We see Peter doing that in Acts. He didn't do it, though, on the night of his denial. And now he commends it. Don't be afraid. Don't fear their intimidation, but set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready to make a defense. He did that in Acts. God miraculously delivered him from prison. Now he's conveying it to the disciples. He had failed in this, 
in his denial of Christ, he did fear the intimidation of a servant girl and of another person in three times. And now he says this to them. Chapter four, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Endure sufferings with joy, he says. Chapter five, verse one through four. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. I think he has in mind the transfiguration that he had experienced. And he says, says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Verse three, not as lording it over them, a lot to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter is here doing for next generation pastors and elders what Jesus did for him in that restoration. Shepherd my sheep. He's telling them, shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock in the way that Christ taught us to do so. But also, I want you to notice here earlier. I didn't write it down, and I don't know that I can find it. I'm sorry about that. Let's move on. We come to chapter 5 here, and there's one more token that I want you to see. This jumped out to me in my study for these messages. I thought this was wonderful. Verse 13, at the close, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting, and so does my son, Mark. My son, Mark. You know anything about Mark? He was John Mark, part of the original Jerusalem church. Uh, Barnabas's cousin. This is the John Mark that went with Paul and Silas. I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And when they got to Turkey, on the southern coast of Turkey, it says that Mark bailed. And then on the second missionary journey, or, or later on, Barnabas wanted to resume Mark's companionship with him, and Paul would not have it because he had abandoned them at the first. So Mark has this failure marked on his record, right? Barnabas takes him and uses him in ministry, but not Paul. But here's Peter calling him my son. And we know that most likely, church tradition says very clearly that Mark's gospel was written because he was with Peter and it was based on Peter's memories. He calls him my son here. And I wonder, it's another question for heaven. I wonder if in Mark's failure, he found a Peter who understood. He found a Peter who had denied Christ. He had, a, he had found a Peter who knew in God's restoration and he took him and used him and worked with him and good things came out of it, right? The whole gospel of Mark because of it. And he calls him my son, which tells us he had been with him for a long time. And Peter, Peter owned Mark as his spiritual son. I don't know where you're at this weekend, what your walk with the Lord is like. I know in my life, it's, there's been ups and downs. There's been periods of disappointment and failure and spiritual stagnation and apathy and discouragement. There's been periods of joy and flourishing and growth and excitement. Jesus has a work of grace to do in each one of our lives as his disciples. And if we will walk with him and submit to him and and allow him and look to him, he will do great things in our life and show us an abundance of grace that we can receive and rejoice in, but also that we can minister to others who are going through the same thing. There is no greater savior and shepherd that we can have. There is no one with a more perfect knowledge of how we need to grow and the kinds of things in our hearts that need to be exposed and revealed, the kinds of grace that we need, the kinds of trials that we need to go through to to sharpen and hone our faith. But this reveals that he is at work in that very thing for every disciple. And I would just encourage you to, to look to him, be excited about that work, walk with him in that work today and tomorrow. Re-engage your walk with Christ in his word 
and also in your prayer times, not just to pray for knees and pray for physical ailments, pray for listening to him and hearing him and his guidance and his work in your life and to be used by him for his ministry. You have a part to play in his church and in his kingdom. And that's what he wants to do with us to the full. He tells Peter, when you were younger, this was the case. But he knows Peter's last day and he knows your last day. Won't you make it the best? What potential we have, right, to walk with the living Christ so that on that last day, we can stand before him and know that it mattered for eternity and he'll say, well done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your work in Peter's life and for these unchanging passages, Lord, that are meant to encourage us and bolster us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Each one of us, Lord, has experiences where you worked in our life and used somebody to bring us to yourself. Cause us to remember those. Cause us to think on your faithfulness over the years. Cause us to hope in the goodness that you will bring to us in our future years. And may we make the most of those years by walking closely with you. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. We don't know what tomorrow holds or whether we will ever see each other again, but thank you for bringing us to this place at this time. Lord, use it in that process that you're, you're playing out in each one of our lives. Use this weekend for the good of that. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much again for having us.